Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thank you for downloading and listening. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomena and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, also known as The Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends on donations from you, our our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the Observer's Notebook, you can donate to it via Patreon by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash Observer's Notebook. If you would like to join the ALPO, Membership begins at only $18 a year. For more information, go to the internet at alpo-astronomy.org. And you can also find us on Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And yes, here, this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode of the Observer's Notebook. And now, episode 77 with Dr. Aaron McDonald on the Observer's Notebook. Enjoy. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook podcast. Today we have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Aaron McDonald, astrophysicist. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. It's awesome. Now, why don't you just give everybody a little two-minute introduction about yourself, and then we'll get, get into it. Yeah, no problem. Um, so my background is in astrophysics. I did work in academia for a while. I did my doctorate at the University of Glasgow as part of the LIGO collaboration, which was searching for gravitational waves. Um, some of you may have heard of them. They won the Nobel Prize a couple years ago. I left the collaboration right before they made their Nobel Prize winning discovery, but it's oh, fine. No. <laughs> totally fine. I was the right decision. I left academia. I started teaching for a little while. I taught at community colleges and at science museums. And then I got into aerospace engineering. And on top of all of that, I started giving talks at science fiction conventions on the intersection between science and science fiction. So right now I also work as a science consultant trying to help writers get the science right in science fiction. Because my background's in general relativity, I typically focus on um, the uh like space time so faster than light travel artificial gravity all that fun stuff oh fantastic now i I have to tell you uh full disclosure up front um i've seen your videos you have video series and you've actually been on other podcasts that i listen to um oh awesome (laughs) yeah uh, 
for those listeners, uh, I do have a Star Trek podcast as well. I don't know if a lot of my listeners know that. It's called Generations. I have it with my son. And we talk to fathers and sons, aunts and uncles, and people like that uh, who are interested in Star Trek. And you've been on Trek Profiles, and you were on John and Ken from uh, Mission Log. So yep. you're familiar with all those people and stuff. So that's very cool. Uh, awesome. But, I love the Star Trek community. Yeah, I, I have a great time. Yeah, we're, we're a lot of fun. But uh, I work for Goddard Space Flight, Space Flight Center. And about a month ago, one of our engineers who listens to this podcast mentioned to me, hey, you should have Dr. Aaron on your podcast. <laughs> I thought, Yay. Yay. I, I've heard her. Yeah, she'd be, she'd be a lot of fun. And then like two days later, I get a, an email from Star Trek The Cruise that you were being announced as one of the people that are going to be on the cruise. So I'm like, okay, my universes are colliding right now. I need, <laughs> I need to do something about this. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, it will be. Um, I did the cruise this year. And like you said, they just announced me for next year. And I am thrilled to bits. I cannot wait to be back. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the waiting list for next year. So hopefully awesome. I can do it. Yeah. So who was your inspiration to get into science? Yeah, I mean, I kind of took a little bit of a non-traditional path. You know, I was like most kids, I think I was interested in space and dinosaurs. <laughs> I think a lot of us don't really grow out of that. And um, but for me, I grew up when the X-Files was on and I was so deeply I cannot convey to you how obsessed I was with the X-Files. It was just the end all and be all. I was a little too young to be, it was a little scary for me. And so I was technically not supposed to be watching it, but I knew how to record our VHS player in secret. <laughs> so I would record it and then sneak off and watch it at night. And I just, Dana Scully was everything I wanted to be. I was a little redheaded girl watching a redheaded woman, like Donald Labcoat and fight aliens with science. <laughs> and I just thought it was the coolest thing. And they mentioned like offhand in one episode, she did her undergraduate degree in physics and wrote a thesis on Einstein's uh, twin paradox and I was like, well, that sounds cool. Uh, and I can do obviously, that. <laughs> logically, if I'm going to become Dana Scully, then I need to study physics. And so that was always kind of in the back of my mind. And obviously, lots of factors go into that. But I really was just so motivated to do everything I could to become as awesome as this woman was I was watching on TV. So that really kind of set that nugget in my brain that I needed to become a scientist so I could become Dana Scully. That's cool. Have you ever met Jillian Anderson? I have not. You know, I um, I dedicated my undergraduate thesis to Dana Scully. And then when I went to graduate school, I actually ended up watching a lot of Star Trek in graduate school. <laughs> and Captain Janeway is what got me through that. And uh, I really lean toward my fictional mentors because I just, I have a very, I have a personality that I really get into my fandoms. And nothing's just, uh, wrong with that. Thank you. Exactly. I ride a Star Trek motorcycle, okay? Awesome. <laughs> Kindred spirits. I yes. love it. Um, but yeah, Captain Jane, we got me through that. So I did get a chance to meet Kate Mulgrew, and she oh. signed my PhD thesis, but I have yet oh. to meet Jillian Anderson. We'll get there one yeah. day. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure you will. Now, why, why did you pick astrophysics because of um, Dana Scully? I think a combination of those, you know, in addition to the X-Files, another big movie that had an impact on me was Contact. And um, that was Dr. Ellie Arroway in that that oh. came out. Yeah, and she was like the SETI scientist. And I mean, in addition to just being obsessed with Dana Scully, I was watching the X-Files because I was obsessed with space and aliens and all of that. And so when I learned that you could like 
go to college and literally just study space, I just thought was the coolest thing. I originally actually wanted to be an astrobiologist and Mm. try to study how life could live on other planets. But biology was really not my jam. I'm much more of like a math and data person. And so I kind of gravitated more toward, (laughs) gravitated more toward (laughs) physics. And, and, And I really found my, and it took a while, you know, to find my place there. I started doing radio astronomy and And then I had this opportunity to study gravitational waves and sort of transitioned into that through the radio with neutron stars and stuff. And then just really kind of fell in love. Obviously, just objectively awesome things like black holes colliding and gamma rays. Right, right. I love it. Yeah. Now, now I've I've heard in the past, too, that Dana Scully has affected other women to get into sciences. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. It's, it's kind of called, what is it, the Scully effect or something like that? Yeah, the um, the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media actually commissioned a, a statistical study to look into this. And they found, I don't have the exact number, so please forgive me. I'll throw something <laughs> approximate out there. Um, but it was like women around my age who were medium to heavy viewers of the X-Files, which I fall into that category, <laughs> were like statistically... I think it's something like 60% more likely to go into STEM than women who didn't watch the X-Files. And so there really was just this, like you couldn't argue the statistical correlation of X-Files viewers and women who went into science. So yeah, they called it the Scully effect. I actually got to speak about it this past weekend with Gina Davis. which was Oh, amazing. how very cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, now, I'm sure you face challenges in your career. What type of things have you been challenged with and how do you overcome them? Um, you know, science is hard. That's no joke. I, I get told by a lot of people when I go speak at events, you know, uh, gee, I would have loved to have done this, but I suck at math. You know, a lot right. of people say that. I think having the right teachers makes a huge difference. And I was very lucky. Obviously, I had some that weren't great, but in parallel, especially by the time I was in college where you have multiple teachers within, you know, you're taking two or three physics classes or two or three math classes at the same time, you get, you, the teachers balance out a little bit. And um, so I was very lucky. And then I, I was able to find a peer group. And I think that really helped because I was never someone who was naturally good at it. I just really wanted to do it. And I fought through it and it wasn't until about halfway through my undergraduate degree that things really started clicking. And that was a long time. I mean, I was fully committed at this right, point, right. <laughs> um, but it really was taking advantage of, you know, those late night homework sessions and office hours and, and using my resources to get through that. Um, additionally, I mean, I really can't discount having fictional mentors like Dana Scully and Captain Janeway and Dr. Airway to kind of keep me going right when I wanted to give up. And, you know, we talk about the gender disparity in science and, and there wasn't a lot. My graduating class was 17 people and three, I think actually my class, there were just two of us who were women. And even that statistically, it's usually about one in 15, like, you know, between one in 10 to one in 15, just really not a lot. And, um, I was very lucky to kind of have a good peer group. Obviously the offhand comments hurt. Some of the older professors will Mm -hmm. say stupid things, but if you have 
friends that you can laugh it off with, or you can just curl up under your blanket and watch the X-Files and remember that you can become Dana Scully one day, that she had to go through the same stuff, then that kind of gets you through it. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I work, like I said, I work for NASA and I'm stationed out here in California. I work at the Raytheon facility out here as we're building one of our weather satellites. And they're bringing in a whole new group of engineers now to work on some of our next generation satellites. And I would say 60% of their hires are young college educated women. And these women are, these women are sharp. I mean, I'm, I try challenging them because I'm the old NASA guy. Okay. Tell me about (laughs) this. And they, they feed it right back to me. And yeah, they're, they're, uh, I talked to one today who said Dana Scully was one of her motivations too. So I found that really interesting. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I hope you're challenging the young guys too. Cause they, uh, Oh yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> they, they come, Yeah. Well, I won't even yeah. go there. <laughs> yeah, um, so what, what I want to talk about today is science education using pop culture or through yeah. pop culture. Uh, but before we get off on that, uh, how, what's your opinion of the state of science education right now in this country? Well, it's tough. You know, I think um, there's a lot of anti-science rhetoric. I think there's some aspect of our society where it's kind of become cool to be ignorant. And that's really hard. And I think we've lost track of what science means and what it can give us. And I think a lot of the rhetoric has turned a lot of society against scientists. And I actually put this in both directions. I think that there's there are many aspects to this, one of which is people like to belong. Um, Science is hard and the internet allows us to find our peer groups. And if the one thing that can find you a peer group is to reject science through some of those societies that are out there, then it's a peer group and you can fall into that. And I think some of the people fall into it because they have been rejected or have felt slighted by scientists. Mm. And this happens to me a lot in the sense that I go out to pubs. <laughs> Those are my happy places. Okay. And if I strike up a conversation, especially the amount of travel I do or something, if I'm in a bar or something like that, and I just strike up a conversation, people find out I'm an astrophysicist. Usually the first question, if they're not like, oh, okay, whatever, and end the conversation right there, the next question is, oh my God, I like, can you explain that article I saw about like <laughs> black hole? Or can you explain why this thing is happening? Or what are your thoughts on this movie? Like they have questions for me because they're excited to meet a scientist. Right. And I think if they, if that happens and they meet a scientist who dismisses them or makes them feel dumb, no one likes to feel dumb and no one likes to be embarrassed. And so I think that that can turn people, that will keep them from asking a scientist the question the next time, right? Because they're not going to want to feel like that again. And it, it puts in this little hostility towards science as a whole. And so I think we have to work to be a little bit more inclusive and a little bit less dismissive. You know, if people, this happened to me at, at a conference, actually, I was moderating a panel and a woman came up to ask a question and she kind of was, started the question out and it sounded like a moon landing conspiracy theorist. Uh, you know, yes. she's just like, I don't understand. It. But as we started to like pry into the question a little bit, we realized that like, she legitimately just didn't understand how you could have that material on the Apollo lander and land and take off again. And she had seen pictures and it just wasn't clicking. 
And we could have very easily just dismissed her outright and said, well, that's a dumb question. You know, of Mm -hmm. course we landed on the moon, but she really had a genuine question that she wanted to ask us. And so taking that time and being patient with people who don't come from a science background, I think is really important. Um, But at the same time, standing by the integrity of science, you know, I really hate this idea where we will have like one person representing uh, around earth and one representing the voice for flat earths when that is not representative <laughs> of the community and the world. And I think sure. it, it falsely gives the impression on, on the fact that things like that are even a debate to begin with. So there, there's a lot of aspects to it, but I think as science communicators, I try to be very careful about how I engage with the public and and build on that enthusiasm for space and dinosaurs that we all have. That's, that's good. That's good. Yeah. It's teachers. A lot of um, my my wife is a retired teacher taught second grade and science was something I would always try to help her with, but the Mm -hmm. amount of time that she's allowed to teach it is really small and it's gotten, it got smaller throughout the years. Yeah. I believe that. It's very frustrating too, to see that. And you know, the, the, the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, the people that, uh, you know, have this podcast, our organization is, I think our average age gets a year older every year, and we're now in our 60s and 70s. And it's <laughs> difficult because we want to bring in, that's the reason for the podcast, to reach out and try, try to find the younger people, younger astronomers that want to look at the moon, look at the planets through their telescopes, and you know, what you can see through a telescope is amazing and then do some science with their telescopes as yeah. well. And that's, that's what we promote in our organization. But it's just trying to get the youth of America engaged you know, yeah. in, in, this type of, in, in this type of endeavor. And it's tough. You know, what are your thoughts on how we could do that? Well, I mean, to kind of transition to a little bit of what we were talking about, what I found, so the reason I got started into doing science communication and especially using pop culture to do that was actually when I was teaching Astronomy 101 at Community College. And when you teach Astronomy 101 at Community College, a good portion of your students are just looking for that science credit. They are not there to become astronomy majors. Some of them are, and some of them chose to be after my class, which was awesome. Um, But you know, they really, there's a lot of just, give me the information, I just need to pass this class. And as we were talking, and I'm teaching, and some of the classes engaged and some aren't, um, we were talking about exoplanets. And I mentioned the Kepler 12b, I believe, was the exoplanet that they discovered that was the first one that had two suns. And so I, or two stars that it was orbiting. And so what I said was, well, this is like Luke Skywalker's home planet of Tatooine. You know, because it had two suns. And of course, the class perks up because that's a reference that they know. And then they started asking questions like, well, but wait, okay, but could that happen? And would it be a desert planet like that? And what, but the, you know, the star you're showing is red and, and the one in Star Wars isn't red. And what difference would that make? And the, the questions they were asking, even though it was kind of about Star Wars, they were still the questions that we try to get the reason we teach science, right? The reason we teach is to get those minds to become inquisitive and think analytically and how to ask questions and probe for answers and, and find answers and prove those. 
And so that's when I realized that me being a sci-fi fan, this was a huge tool for me, right? This is an anchor, using anchor points in science fiction that the public understands and then being able to teach science around that and make scientists out of it is just, oh, that is my happy place. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's, if you can use Star Wars or Star Trek in, in that, now you, you, you speak on Star Trek all the time. What are some of the yeah. things you uh, talk about? Well, I was, I was introduced at a sci-fi convention once as a warp drive expert and <laughs> well, I wanted to just stop right there. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get better than that. That's my life goal. You should have that on a business card. <laughs> right? Seriously. So, um, you know, I really tend to focus with my background. I tend to focus on the space and the physics side of things. And okay. so for example, um, warp drives is one of the things I talk about. I talk about how space time works, why we can't travel faster than the speed of light and you know, why that limit exists and how that has to do with space time. Um, I could get into that if you want, but, but really then the concept of a warp bubble is really just this idea that, well, physics says that nothing on the surface of space time can go faster than the speed of light, but nothing says space time itself can't go faster than the speed of light. Mm. And so if you had this way to warp space time around your ship and allow it to propel you through space time faster than the speed of light, that's your warp drive. And so we talk about the feasibility of that and, and how that could exist. Um, one of my favorite examples as well is transporters. So when... <laughs> do, now, uh, do transporters actually kill you? <laughs> oh, this is a great question. Um, Star Trek actually disagrees on this internally. So the Star Trek canon without yeah, getting... Well, that's not very positive. I mean, that's... <laughs> Yeah, it's not great, right? And Hoshi in Enterprise, I, I think, sums up my fears in terms of wanting to step into a transporter. But the question really is, it'll break you down into your particles. And then does it move the particles and reassemble you? Or does it just store the data of where the particles are and then rebuild you out of other particles? And Star Trek contradicts itself in this sense, because sometimes you end up with two Rikers. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and you store people in buffers, right? And so it's kind of contradicted itself in the past, but the fundamental physics behind it, regardless of how it does that, requires you to know exactly where those particles are, one would hope. <laughs> so you could get rebuilt regardless of how you're doing it. And the thing in physics that doesn't allow us to do that is Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. We can never know exactly where a particle is. Uh, you know, the more we know about it, the less we know about how fast it is, and there's a limit to our knowledge. And, um, but what I love about it is in Star Trek, the transporter has a component called the Heisenberg compensator. Right. <laughs> and we just assume that it fixed the problem in the future. But the fact that they acknowledge they're breaking physics and then um, using that to get around it is just brilliant. And look, you know, I just taught the Heisenberg uncertainty principle to people. And that's, that's what I love. That's how I'm able to do that. So I give talks on the physics of Star Trek, um, how the stuff can work, how we've got to some of the technologies we have today. You know, flip phones are old now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and those were standard communicators in, in Kirk's Star Trek. Yeah, I apologize to my listeners if I'm geeking out a little bit about Star Trek here, but you know, I might release this as a dual 
podcast for both. <laughs> I don't know. We're getting some good science in there. It's we, okay. We, we, we are, but going back to education now. Um, yes. For 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 teaching, like what what levels would you lecture? Like high schools, college. Well, so I started out doing community college and doing okay. universities when I was a postdoc, and but I really like teaching the introductory courses just because. I feel like I have the capability to teach some of this stuff without needing the math to teach it and not all the professors that I've encountered in my life. Math is hard. Yeah. And, and I think you can get the fundamental concepts of introductory physics and astronomy without really needing a lot of that math background, but some people can't teach it any other way. So I tend to gravitate toward introductory classes, but when I started teaching um, at the, Uh, science museum that was fair game and with my background they put me in the it was at the denver museum of nature and science i was put in the space area and told to stay there for eight hours and then come back the next day and do the same thing oh really those and we did you know we had different shows we had one where we would dress as astronauts and go on the surface of mars in a diorama and answer questions from kids on what it was like to live on mars in the future you know little goofy shows like that but The thing with working in a science museum, this is what I tell anyone who wants to get into science communication, volunteer at a science museum, because that's where you will get every question from every background constantly. You will have an eight-year-old who just read a book about black holes Mm -hmm. asking you how they first understood that and asking really detailed questions. Or you could get someone you know, who's retired, who hasn't taken a science class maybe since the 50s asking you questions. And you have to learn very quickly how to tell if an audience is with you, how to ask questions back to them. And most importantly, I think, is how to be comfortable in saying, I don't know, because you're going to do that a lot. But let's look it up, right? We all have phones on us or, you know, we used to have laptops with us at the museum where we could just look things up. And and my skill set is knowing what we need to look up and how to translate that answer. Um, so I teach all ages, but then now I give talks at these sci-fi conventions. Again, it's kind of any age group. It tends to be established sci-fi fans, however you interpret that. That's going to be my audience. And uh, people who have a tangential interest in space but no, don't necessarily come from a science background um, but, you know, who might subscribe to nature or science and, and read the front articles and just want to know what's going on in the science community. That's a lot of my audience. Okay. Yeah, I remember I was at one, it was, uh, was probably Star Trek Las Vegas a few years back, and John Delancey was up there who played Q on Star Trek, for those of you that don't know. And uh, a, a child came up and asked him what it felt like to be beamed. <laughs> nice. And, and you know, he, he was he was polite, but you know, <laughs> it was you, know, you get those type of questions at those things too. It's kind of funny. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, what what are you working on right now? Um, so right now I I have a lot of things. I'm mostly I'm hitting my peak convention season. So I am going to be at Star Trek Las Vegas. I'm also going to be at Dragon Con. I'm also going to be at Rose City Comic Con. I think all of those have been announced. Um, and then a couple more yet to be announced. And um, I'm working on some TV shows that I can't talk about, but I oh. desperately wish I could. <laughs> oh. Once I can, I will scream it from the rooftops. And you Fantastic. Will <laughs> yeah. Um, 
you know, that's a good thing. I moved out to LA a couple years ago and I had met so many writers and producers and, and, uh, you know, actors on the convention circuit that I started to get plugged in where they would be like, Oh wait, you talk about that. Like we have this project going on. We'd love your help on that. And so that if we're talking dream job, that's dream job right there. Um, and, uh, but yeah, and then continuing to kind of do events like this, do a lot of science communication. Like I said, I just did the event with Gina Davis. So we're trying to find some more ways to get involved that way. Um, to just kind of increase the visibility and, and yeah, we'll see. I think my future right now is very dynamic. So I'm excited to see what, what comes of it. It's like I said early on, I mean, you, you were on my radar in a couple different areas and I'm like, okay, all right, I'll have her on the podcast, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That just, it, someone described me once as like a one woman career panel for a degree in astrophysics. <laughs> yeah, you, you probably could. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, so Tell me about your background. Where did you come from? I mean, you said you just recently moved to LA? Yeah, that's right. So I grew up in Colorado. Um, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Colorado in Boulder. um, Oh, I love that school. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I actually went to a different college. I went um, for my freshman year and just didn't work for me. And I had a professor who said, like, you grew up in Colorado and you want to do astrophysics? Hmm. You need to go to CU Boulder. Yeah. (laughs) And they weren't wrong. Um, I got research opportunities out of the gate. I mean, I was doing research as a sophomore um, and I had published a paper my senior year and had presented it at conferences. And, um, but like I said, then I was kind of looking at graduate school options and I had never had a chance to study abroad. And I had, you know, my grandfather was from Scotland. So I had always kind of wanted to spend more time over there. We'd gone over a couple times, but I started looking at graduate programs in the UK and they actually suited me very well. People are kind of divided on this, but graduate programs in the UK are seen more as apprenticeships. So they're a little bit shorter. They don't necessarily have as much classroom needs or requirements, but you have to know how to do research going into the gate. There's no sort of training or visiting other labs or anything like that, you show up on day one and you're given your computer and they say, right, we'll see you in three to four years with a PhD thesis. So I was looking at those programs because I had so much research background in radio astronomy. Um, They were comfortable with me coming into that program. And I met a professor, um, Professor Graham Wohn, who did research in neutron stars, had started working in LIGO at the University of Glasgow. And he was excited to bring more astrophysicists on because a lot of people in LIGO up until that point were coming from more of a materials and engineering background because they were trying to build the systems hmm. and, and computer programming as well to try to build the algorithms to try to mine through this data. But they didn't really have, they had some, don't get me wrong, but they didn't have a lot of people who were thinking like, beyond the first detection, right? How, what astrophysics can we learn once we start detecting gravitational waves? And so that's kind of how I got plugged into that. So my undergraduate research or my, sorry, my PhD research was a lot of figuring out the best ways to detect gravitational waves from neutron stars by combining algorithms and just doing a little bit more data science, a little smarter And then as I kind of went through that and got a bit heavier into the astrophysics side, my research started to move into the gamma ray bursts component. So 
what we figured out and have since validated is that short gamma ray bursts, which are, for those who don't know, gamma ray bursts are huge flashes of gamma rays that fall kind of into two categories. One is short gamma ray bursts, which tend to be less than two seconds, and one are long gamma ray bursts, which are longer. Long gamma ray bursts, we've kind of always associated with a certain type of supernova or exploding star. The short gamma ray bursts we thought were associated with a neutron star collision, either one neutron star in a black hole or two neutron stars. And this was all kind of at the cusp of this research when LIGO was coming on. They had just discovered kilonovas. So this like glow from a short gamma ray burst that indicated that there might be radioactive elements, which could only form if there was a neutron star collision. Um, But then we were trying to figure out, you know, compact binary in spirals. So collisions of two really compact objects like neutron stars or black holes would give off a gravitational wave signal that we could detect. And so part of my job was to try to detect them and then figure out the type of science that we could learn from that. And this um, is like ra- radio telescopes? No, so this is this is using LIGO, which is oh, what okay. they... That's okay. It's uh, really quick. It's the laser interferometer. And so they have two detectors in the U.S., one in Washington State and one in Louisiana, They're basically shaped like an L. They're four kilometers in each direction. They send laser beams out each way. Uh, They hit a mirror, they come back. And gravitational waves are ripples in space-time. So Einstein predicted these. He said, you know, if something happens, space-time is going to ripple, kind of like a a pond. Um, But they're so small, no one will detect them. Scientists said, challenge accepted. (laughs) So (laughs) what they did is that they... um, they built them so a uh, gravitational wave, if it was to pass by, one arm would get shorter and one arm would get longer. And the laser beams would be split in each direction. And when they would combine back, if a gravitational wave passed by, there would be an interference pattern because the arms wouldn't be the same length. But the changes in distance we're talking about, so the arms are four kilometers long, we're looking at changes that are one one thousandth the size of an atom. So about one part, yeah, one part in 10 to the 23-ish, insanely small. And, uh, but a lot of data science, a lot of statistics can pull these signals out. And they detected the first signal in September of 2015, which was almost exactly 100 years since Einstein predicted them Mm. in 19. 15, which is awesome. Um, And since then, so they saw two black hole in spirals. So there was no electromagnetic component. There was no signal from any other traditional radio, X-ray, gamma ray, optical, ultraviolet, none of that. But we saw these ripples and it was exactly what we would expect a a black hole collision to look like. And then a, a year or so later, they actually did get a gravitational wave signal associated with a gamma ray burst. And so these, co- these collaborations work very closely together. And there's a gamma ray burst collaboration called Fermi. And they basically... Oh, have- what is that? I'm sorry. Fermi was the name of the collaboration okay. for gamma ray burst. And basically they have this agreement that if they get a burst, they'll tell LIGO. If LIGO gets a burst, they'll ah. tell Fermi. And this was like the worst kept secret in astronomy ever because they both flagged each other and then immediately every telescope around the world pointed in one direction. <laughs> oh my goodness. And they found a, this cool thing is every single spectrum of electromagnetic telescopes saw this event happen. 
um, for up to weeks afterwards. They were seeing this like afterglow in radio waves. And so we learned so much from that. And that really is that first, they, they clarified that short gamma ray bursts do have a neutron star collision in them. Then we saw the fact that you had gold come out of that. You had all these heavy elements come out of that. Just the amount of science we learned in one detection was mind boggling. And it really is this multi-messenger astronomy, which just is awesome. <laughs> wow. This is fascinating. I mean, it's, yeah, uh, this, and this is what you worked on for your master's and doctorate uh, for my doctorate, doctorate and for my postdoc research afterwards. Yeah. Okay. So how was it in Glasgow? It was awesome. My family is, like I said, my grandfather is Scottish and um, I, this it's just my people. <laughs> it's just very straightforward. You know, they'll love you. They you like pubs and you have the red hair. So, okay. I, <laughs> it's all coming together I, for me here. <laughs> I fit in very well in Glasgow. No, you know, I'm glad I had a few opportunities in the UK and I'm really glad I chose Glasgow because it was a big city, but it's not a big tourist city. And so my accent didn't immediately flag me as a tourist. They kind of would be like, well, there's no other reason for you to be here other than you live here. (laughs) So I was able to really make a home in Glasgow and I lived there for a long time. And uh, yeah, I loved it. It was just a very different culture. Um, Going through my PhD, I think most people don't take very good care of their bodies. Living somewhere where there's a lot of beer and fried food <laughs> does not help the situation. Took me a few years to self-correct after that. But you know what? It was exactly what I needed at the time. And yeah, yeah I loved it. Now, you're no longer in academia, you said. Correct. Yeah, I you left. Mm-hmm. You miss it? I don't, actually. No? Yeah, it's a hard life. Um it's very competitive for some people. It works for people for myself. It was not, um, for me, the big decision that, and I would make the same one again was that I was in the postdoc world. So Mm. for those of you who are listening, who might not know, um, after your PhD, you have to do a postdoc and that's usually two in my realm. That was like a one to three year contract. And then you do another one and another one. And each one of these, you're moving to different universities until maybe four or five-ish postdocs later, you'd get a professorship. Now, that was my world because we hadn't made a gravitational wave detection yet. So it was very hard to get postdoc positions. Once the gravitational wave was detected, there were a lot more positions available. And had I stayed in academia, um, I would have different opportunities available to me. Um, But the good thing is, I had a woman going through her PhD at the same time I was Um, We were always had to be travel companions because we were the only girls who were going to all these conferences. So we always had to share the hotel room and she stayed in academia. I left and we just lived vicariously through each other. So she just got her professorship and Oh, fantastic. (laughs) And I live vicariously through her. Anytime I miss academia, she's like, let me forward you the last 10 emails I got. And I go, Oh yeah, I don't miss this at all. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But hearing your voice, Um, the way you describe it, I mean, there is a passion still there. Oh yeah, for sure. But you know what? I've been able to find my passion elsewhere. What I really loved was my teaching. Um, I love being able to bring this stuff to the public and realizing that I still have the foundation to be able to explain it. And as long as 
you know, people understand that I'm not a professor in it, but I do have the foundation. I think I can still be a voice for it. The LIGO collaboration has happily blessed me to go talk about this stuff. You know, they love that I do it. They see me as an ambassador for what they do. And, um, but then too, like I, I briefly mentioned, I went into aerospace engineering and I actually found a lot of the same passion that I can do data science. I can do hard analytics. Now it's not stuff I can necessarily talk about as openly, but you know, I can still have that excitement of problem solving and challenges and, and communicating to different audiences. I still get that in the industry. And I think that's something that people who haven't left academia don't realize that you can find that in a lot of other industries. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. uh, And you seem like you've hit your niche to working with the sci-fi community. Yeah. I mean, you you really have, and but I want to recommend to our listeners too that you have a YouTube channel. I do. It's called Doctor Aaron Explains the Universe. Um, you will notice it has not been updated lately because I've been on the road. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it is a there. Are, I would hope that there are plenty of videos there to keep you entertained on the science of science fiction. And then I do things like this. Yeah, and I I, I highly recommend that listeners, if you're interested in all in this, you check out her YouTube channel. It's really it's really cool. Thank and, you. I really appreciate that. And you do explain things really well. So that's, 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 that's difficult when it comes to science sometimes. It is. And I think it's a skill that I really enjoy. And like you said, there's, there's not a lot out there. And when my title of my show is Dr. Aaron explains the universe, I better be able to explain it well. <laughs> so yeah. now, I signed up for that. Now a black hole question for you. The All recent, right, the on. recent, the recent photograph. Yes. What do you, what, what talk to me about it? <laughs> well, I like a month ago I got it tattooed onto me. So <laughs> no way. <laughs> probably tells you a little bit about how excited I was. Oh my goodness. It was like tattoo number 25, so there's a lot. <laughs> but um no, it, the I did get asked this a lot actually. People a lot of people came up to me and said, mm-hmm. "We already have taken like I thought we'd seen black holes before. Like why why is this unique?" Right. And Uh, really what we had seen was we'd seen like the x-ray glow of black holes. We had seen all this evidence around it. And then LIGO obviously has like seen black holes colliding or a good way to think about it is they've heard black holes colliding, even though it's not sound waves, but it's kind of analogous to that. Um, What this picture was, was an actual picture of the event horizon, like the hole itself. (laughs) That, That amazes me. Because I was yeah. always taught you can't see a black hole, you know. It's just like, and and for this to come out, and it's just the just the thought behind it. Yeah, and the amazing thing is, is it's one of the things I love about space research in general is like it becomes borderless so fast because in order to get this picture, they used radio telescopes from all over the world and basically just had to turn the Earth into one giant radio telescope in order to get this picture, and they nailed it. Um, So some people ask why we saw this one in a different galaxy and not the supermassive black hole in our galaxy, which Mm. is closer. Um, The one is in our galaxy, in the center of our galaxy, which is a supermassive black hole, is closer but not as massive. And the one we saw is far away, but it's really massive. So they're kind of comparable in being able to detect them. And from what I heard, that collaboration is trying to image the black, supermassive black hole in the center of our galaxy as well. Wow. And so where is the tattoo located? 
<laughs> it's on my shoulder. It's right behind. Um, so I'm building a ship of spaceship sleeve, like a sleeve of spaceships. And I also have um, the uh, the bullet cluster on my arm as well. Oh my so. god! And, and you have DS Nine parked outside the black hole. No, it's a wormhole, right? You're, you know, DS Nine is going to go on there. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, this is fun. This is fun. What do you have? Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I don't think so. Um, I apologize to all the people who are not Trekkies who had to endure the Star Trek uh, <laughs> conversation. For, for, forget, front. forget them. I mean, this is all about me. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, no, you know, I, I really appreciate the conversation. I think there's a lot to it. I think science communication is so important, and I just really appreciate you giving the opportunity to me to have the conversation. Yeah, and unfortunately, I'm not going to be at STLV this year, uh, I, but I think we met each other last year. You did a panel last year. I did. Yeah, I and I think I met. <laughs> yeah, I think we met last year at that. And so, so my awesome. my geekdom is showing to my astronomy friends right here. So <laughs> there is, I always say, there is a non. When you draw the Venn diagram of Star Trek fans and astronomers, there's a huge intersection. Oh yeah, oh yeah, there 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 really is. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Well, <laughs> Aaron, how could everybody get a hold of you and find you on Facebook or elsewhere on the internet? Yeah, no worries. So if you search for Dr. Aaron Explains the Universe, you'll find my YouTube channel. Um, my website is AaronPMacDonald.com or DrAaronMac.com. Um, at DrAaronMac, Mac is where you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. And the Tattooed Gravity Girl is how you find me on Facebook. <laughs> tattooed <laughs> Gravity me, Girl. They won't let me change it again, but I think it describes me pretty well. Yeah, I um, think it does. Yeah, but my website is where you'll be able to find um, this recording is or the link to this recording as well as a bunch of other content, um, including some of the things I mentioned, like that Scully Effect video, um, and also all my upcoming appearances. So yeah, please, please come say hi if you see me at any events. Sounds wonderful. I'm looking forward to whatever TV show you might be writing or working on. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) All right. Let's get talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Have a good one. All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I really want to thank Dr. Aaron McDonald for coming on the podcast today. It was a lot of fun, and I apologize if we spoke too much Star Trek. If you enjoyed it, hey, even better. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really, really appreciate it if you can. You can also listen to us on iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, and Amazon Echo. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon by giving up to $35 a month, where you will receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I want to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Seedentop, for his continued generous support of the Observer's Notebook. Thank you very much, Steve. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at @observersnbpod. Until next time, my hope is that you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.